Um, let's pray, and then we'll open up the Word. Heavenly Father, the most important thing right now for every single individual in this room and in the kids' ministry across the hall is that we would encounter the living God. And that I can even say that with any kind of confidence is a miracle. That we would be able to know the one who made us and the one for whom we were made. And so, Father, I pray that as we enter into this Christmas season, as we enter into um, the expectancy of Advent, Father, that you would move with great power on our hearts and that you would cause the affections of our soul to rise up and greet you as we ought to, Father, that we would enjoy you and enjoy the story of how you entered into human history to redeem a people for yourself. Let that not be lost on us, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you've got your Bibles, please uh, open them and turn to Colossians 1. It's kind of interesting how um, sometimes scripture that you're reading uh, will line up with a season of your life um, or something you're going through or a problem you're facing, and it just seems like it connects, the dots connect for some reason. <clears throat> Today, the passage we're reading in Colossians actually has a lot to do with Christmas. And so I'm kind of thrilled that we, we ended up there. The prophet Isaiah wrote of the coming of Jesus into the world. He said this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, light has shone on them. And then only a few verses, we get the unforgettable words that everybody here knows. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And that's what the Christmas season is all about. His advent into the world to deliver a people from darkness. And I want to show you that in our text today. So we're going to start in verse 12, which is kind of in the middle of a sentence. So bear with me. Colossians 1 verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, Paul's in the middle of his prayer for the Colossian church, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So today, we're going to be starting a, a series in the, the Christmas season that we're calling Delivered from Darkness. And you can probably see the connections already in the passage we just read in Colossians and what we read, uh, what I just read to you from Isaiah. And it, it's all over the Bible. Here, here's a passage from the book of Luke from Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father. And he's prophesying over his son, who's just born. And he says this of John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord and to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. And he says the reason why the sunrise is going to visit us is, is in order to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So we see in these three passages something interesting. It seems like there's a theme of light and darkness. And, and if I'm honest with you, this theme actually runs through the entire narrative of Scripture. Theologians refer to this as biblical theology. When you can trace a concept or a reality through the entire narrative of the biblical story. And this story of light and dark runs through the entire narrative of Scripture. One of the things I want to accomplish today that I would like for all of us uh, to have is I, I want to disabuse us of the idea that the Bible is, is simply a book of, of individual or a collection of individual books written by separate authors at different times that when you sort of combine their meaning. They have a really cool overall meaning, but they're really not connected. That is, is not how I would like Risen Hope to think about the Bible. The Bible, rather, is a single story, and it has one author, God. And every pen, behind every pen, every paper, every mind, every voice that is writing this story there is only one author, God. And I hope that some of what we see today will, actually, will help you understand and comprehend that. Uh, the single story that focuses, um, uh, that the, the story the Bible focuses on, this main overarching story, is a story about God sending his son into the world to redeem a people for himself from slavery to darkness, the darkness of sin and the darkness of death. And my job, part of my job every week, is to do everything I can in my power to try to communicate that this is one story. And the themes of light and dark today are, are prevalent throughout all of Scripture. So if we look back at the Colossians passage, take some time to just to unpack a little bit about what we see here. Um, the, it says, The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance with the saints of the saints in light. So there, there's an inheritance, and we talked about this before, this risen hope. Now this inheritance is defined as or described as being in light. And we see why Paul uses this language, because immediately after this he says, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So this contrasting reality of, of an inheritance in light with the saints, the people of God, in this domain of darkness that we need to be delivered from. These are two realities that are pitted against each other in this passage and throughout the entire Bible. To understand this passage and the implications, I want to look at some specific points in Scripture. <laughs> if, we, if, if I wanted to look at all of them, it would literally take us a year to go through. We're going to highlight just a few of them in a few specific books. And the first point, literally, is at the beginning of the Bible. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 1.1 which is relatively easy to find. Um, we're going to read the first five verses. And, um, and I want you to think about the language that Moses is using. Inspired by the Spirit of God, think about what he's saying here at the very beginning of Scripture, at the beginning of God's story, at the beginning of any human records. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and void, 
and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So let's look at a few things here. Try to understand why Scripture, the Bible, starts describing darkness and light in these ways. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now this should be strange to us, to Christians in particular, because we know from John, 1 John 1, or 1 John uh, 5, rather, or 1, uh, that God is light and that there is no darkness in him at all. We also know from uh, 1 Timothy 6 that, that God dwells in unapproachable light. And this eternal God is light. He dwells in light. So why, at the start of the story, is there darkness? I think our brains try to answer this question maybe historically or scientifically or come up with some physical reason to answer this question and sort of fill in the gap. Um, but I think if we go about it that way, at least initially, we will miss the entire point. Remember, Scripture, from front to back, one story, one author. God is telling a story here, and he doesn't just want us to know a record of events. He wants us to know why things played out this way. Why is this record of events important in this way? So we begin, for some reason, with darkness. But he doesn't leave it that way for long. God says, let there be light. And then light explodes into existence even before there are any physical sources for light to flow from which I think is kind of insightful. Now, this isn't a mistake on Moses' part. He didn't think that light existed and then somehow the sun was used as light. He knew where the physical sources for light came from. Moses knew that, probably better than we do. The ancients had a very intimate understanding of what they can see and when they can see it. And in the modern era, we don't really appreciate it the same way that they did. Um, so why would Moses write this. What is God trying to say by creating light before there's any sun or stars? I think God made light before the sun to show us that light ultimately doesn't belong to the sun. Light doesn't belong to stars. Light ultimately belongs to God. God doesn't need a sun for light to exist. The sun isn't the reason that light exists ultimately. God is the reason that light exists. The sun is only an instrument, a tool that God uses so that we can, as human beings in a physical world, understand and comprehend the physicality of light. But it doesn't exist because of the sun. It exists because of God. Now, what does it say next? It says that God saw the light after he created it, and he saw that it was good. He saw that the light was good, and it caused him to separate the light from the darkness. And he does this by calling them names. He says, the light 
I'm going to call day. And the darkness, I'm going to call night. And then he does something very weird again. He says, the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, this is weird for us. It should be weird for us because this is not how we divide up days. We wake up in the morning. We go to work. We go about our daily tasks because there's light outside. We can see things. <laughs> our day starts in the morning, and our day ends at night, and we go to sleep, and that's it. This is not how the Hebrews divided their day because God told them in this passage not to divide their day like that. Their day starts in the evening and goes to day, goes to morning. Now, why exactly is that? Why start in the evening and go to the morning? What would God's purpose be in designing the day that way? And the most rational answer we can have when we come to a passage like this is say, there's something God wants us to understand about this. About night giving way to day about darkness ultimately giving way to light. So God is teaching us something by designing it this way. Let's go back to our passage in Colossians just for a second and see if we can draw this out a little bit further. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it says that God's delivering us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferring us into a kingdom that is not dark. It isn't the domain of darkness anymore. We're not there anymore. We are now in light. We are saints in light. And so Colossians is echoing this concept that is presented in Genesis 1, saying that things in the world, that God's designed reality in such a way that the darkness gives way to the light. Now, probably more than any other book in the Bible, the book of John, the Gospel of John, engages these paradigms of light and darkness, these pitted realities, night and day. And so we would be doing this passage in Colossians and injustice if we didn't spend a little bit of time in John, which is a central point in this war between dark and uh, light. So um, what does John say about the domain of darkness? What does he say about the light? Listen to a few verses from his gospel. Now, John's gospel is interesting. All the gospels start their narrative at different points in human history. All of them. They start at different points in the genealogy, different points in human history. The gospel of John starts before human history begins. He starts at the same exact point that Genesis starts. Listen to what he says here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 9, he explains what this light is. He says, 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, this is the light he's talking about, was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So this is how the Gospel of John begins. This concept of the true light breaking into the world. So this light that comes is in the form of a person. It's this mysterious person that John refers to as the Word. He just calls him Logos in the Greek, the Word. We can spend a lot of time on that word alone, but I want to look at one aspect of it. Somehow this Word, this light, is both with God and is God at the same time. He's both with God and is God. In the book of Hebrews, the opening of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, helps us understand why John would say, I'm going to use logos, I'm going to use word to, to give a name to the preexistent Son of God. This is what he says, the author of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God has spoken in many ways, the author of Hebrews saying, throughout history. But all of those ways, all the different ways that he's spoken to different people, different prophets throughout human history have resolved into one final word, one final statement, and that is his son. Of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the word. Jesus is the true light, and Jesus's advent into the world is the breaking forth of light, true light, into human history, into human existence. Now, why does John use this language? Why would he refer to Jesus as the light? If we read on in the Hebrews passage, we actually see that the author of Hebrews tells us why John would make this this jump. He says, he is, Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this light, Christ Jesus, is, according to the author of Hebrews and according to John, the radiance, the glory of God the Father, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the glory of God personified in human All of his radiant beauty, all of his radiant splendor has coalesced into a human being. John 1.14 says about the same thing. Let me read this to you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, his radiance, his beauty. Glory as of the only Son from the Father of grace and truth. He says we have seen his 
glory. We've seen the glory of God through the Son. This is God's glory in the flesh. And at this point, you might be saying, hey, Jeremy, this is supposed to be a Christmas sermon. What are you do? What are you, why are you not in Luke 2? What's going on here? Um, this is probably one of the most Christ- Christmas verses in the Bible. Um, this is the Christmas story, the story of true light penetrating the darkness of the world and taking on human flesh. We call this the incarnation, when God became man. And that's what Christmas is all about. But how do we connect it to the passage in Colossians? So how is this connected to the domain of darkness? How is the true light coming into the world connected to the kingdom of the beloved son? Now, if we let him, John will answer this question for us later on in the book. So John 8, 12, Jesus says this of himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is very controversial. What he's saying here is he's setting up a massive delineation and he's removing any middle ground. He's saying that I am the light of the world. I I am the light of the world. There is in anybody else. There's no other. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you will have me, you will have the light of light, the light of life. But if you refuse me, you will have darkness. So, if we look at this connection too that Jesus is calling out, we see that this is, Jesus is saying that light is somehow connected with life. That there's this connection between the two. And if you remember in John 1, we read that um, in him, in Jesus Christ, is life. And the life that's in him is called the light of men. And so there's a connection in scripture between light between the reality of light and between what true life is true vitality true life and therefore the correlation we can draw from that is that there must be a connection between darkness and death and this connection will become clear with every word that jesus says from here on out john 12 only hours before he goes to the cross Jesus says this solemnly and probably with tears in his eyes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus says, my judgment of this world is the casting out of the ruler of this world, the ruler of the domain of darkness will be cast out. And this is going to happen when they put me on a Roman cross and lift me up. When I die, when I'm crucified, the domain of darkness will be decisively defeated. Now, this is a problem for those who have been sort of on the Jesus bandwagon at this point. This is not how the Messiah thing is supposed to work. 
This is not how being Christ is supposed to work. And they are scared. They're concerned because he's not supposed to die. According to the law, he's supposed to live forever. His throne's supposed to be forever. Why is Jesus, this person who said he's the son of God, said he's the Christ, why is he saying that he's going to die? <laughs> and Jesus answers them. And he says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. When I am lifted up, you will know this. But he's imploring them. He's saying, believe in me. Believe in me. And you will become sons of light. You will walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. His goal here, his purpose, his desire, his imploring is coming from a place of wanting them to become sons of light because he knows that if they reject him, if they deny him who he objectively is, they will remain enslaved to darkness forever and enslaved to death. Now, tragically, one of Jesus' closest companions is on this path. And he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's been using Jesus' ministry as a means by which he can pad his own pocket. This is, of course, Judas Iscariot. And Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He knows it. And so in the Last Supper, he mentions this, and the disciples are a little bit nervous. They're saying, but someone's going to betray you. Who is it going to be? And to the disciples closest to him, Jesus actually says, he says that it, he says in uh, John, let's see here. No, he says, he basically answers him and says, it is to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan, the ruler of the domain of darkness, entered into him. And Jesus says to him this, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then in verse 30, John writes, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out and it was night. It was night. This is not by accident. John doesn't often give us the time of day. In fact, most ancient authors would not waste the ink to do this. It's inconsequential. Otherwise, we know it's Passover dinner. We know it's night. This is when they celebrated it. But he takes the time to mention that it is night. He wants us to know that we are entering into darkness. This is the descent of Christ Jesus into the crucifixion. Every step from here on out is closer to Golgotha and the death of the Son of, the, uh, Son of God. And Luke 24 tells us 
that in Jerusalem, when Jesus was being crucified from about noon to 3 p.m., it says that there was a darkness that covered the land. In fact, Luke's specific words are, the sun's light failed. Could not give off light. Jerusalem is blanketed in darkness. And this really is just a glimpse of what Jesus Christ, the true light, the word, was about to enter into and be consumed by. The domain of darkness completely overwhelmed the author of light, the author of life, and smothered the light of the world on that cross. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was supposed to live forever, died. Can you imagine what it was like for the people who had believed in him? Who saw him teach, who spent time with him, who ate meals with him, who believed that he was the Christ to pull his body off that cross. To pull what was, according to Isaiah 52, marred beyond human semblance. Didn't even look human. Whatever they pulled, whatever was left of Jesus on that tree did not even look human. The beloved son of the father had died. There was no life in his eyes. There was no pulse. There was nothing in him. And for these people, all of their hope had been snuffed out with the light of the world going out. And John says, Correctly, it was night. Yet we know that this is not the end of the story. Praise be to God. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We know this isn't the end of the story because John says the light shines into the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus doesn't stay dead. The darkness doesn't triumph here, but is in fact defeated. Let's go to the end of the book of John, last chapter, verse 4. Listen to how John describes this. It's a beautiful scene. John 21, 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Just as day was breaking, Jesus Christ stood. Here's the scene. He's already appeared to the disciples two other times. Um, but they are feeling dejected and sorrowful. They don't have any real, he hasn't been there with them long. They don't know what their future is going to be. One of his disciples, Peter, dejected, sorrowful. He goes, unsure what to do, probably, goes back to what he always did before he met Jesus. He says, I'm going to go fishing. And he drags the other disciples along with him. They go into the sea and they are fishing at night. That's what you do. But, and they don't catch anything all day long. But as dawn is breaking, there's a man on the shore who is talking to them, speaking to them. And it's Jesus. 
The sun is coming up and the night is passing. Day is here. Night is gone. And when a man comes back from the dead, Peter makes a fool of himself. He jumps in the water. He's swimming. He's probably crying his eyes out. He wants to see Jesus. When a man comes back from the dead, it begs a question. What happened? Why didn't death have a hold on him like it does everyone else? Or more specifically, what does his resurrection say about me and say about every single human being on this planet, say about us in this room? And we actually get the answer from the first text that we read. We get this answer from the book of Luke. Remember Zechariah's prophecy over his son, John? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The sunrise, he says, shall visit us to give light. Zechariah is talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the resurrected Jesus. Now this term, shadow of death, we tend to think it's poetry. This is not poetry. This is not poetry. This is a shadow cast over every single human being that has ever lived. Everyone in this world dies. And this shadow has slithered into and woven its way into all of our lives in some way, shape, or form. And we all know this. I don't need to convince you guys that death is in this world. We all know this. But what we sometimes fail to see is that every single morning, God has painted for us a picture of the resurrection. Evening to morning. Night to day. Darkness to light. Our day-night cycles in this life are a parable. They are a picture. They are a painting by God to show us that the shadow of death no longer has any power over us. None. And all of this was accomplished on the cross. Death is a just and deserved response to sin, rebellion against God. That's what death is. And Jesus, when he died, he took all of our sin up there on the cross with him, all of the sin of every single person who would believe in him and trust in him and say, I need you. And he would carry it with him on the cross. And although they may have put nails in his hands and feet, his sacrifice, praise be to God, put a nail right in the head of death and ended it for everyone who would believe. And as Colossians says, in the sun, the light, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. And what this means is that on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of sin by paying for it all. All of our sin, all of our rebellion against God. His death 
dealt a decisive blow against our deaths. And now we're forgiven. We are forgiven people and we are redeemed and we stand in his light. Death no longer has any power over us. And what that means is that one day, each and every one of us will look death in the face and tell death to go to hell. And he will obey us. Revelations twenty fourteen, The shadow of death is swallowed up in the light of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer, we're going to participate in communion here as we worship here in a second. Um, communion is our sacred act of remembering his body and his blood, remembering what it cost for him to completely expel death from our future, our eternal future. And we embrace in communion the cost of the cross. We embrace that when the incarnation happened, when Christ came into the world in Christmas, the manger was the doorway to the cross. The manger was his means for getting to the tree so that he could kill death. Don't let that escape you. Please do not in this season. That in his death, he brought an end to death, and that was the very mission from the beginning. He had one thing in mind. I'm going to save my people from death. And that's the purpose of Christmas. That the light of the world came into the world and pierced the heart of darkness. And God sent his beloved son into the world to redeem us in embracing its suffering and its darkness so fully that yes, he dies. Yes, he dies. But in his death, he redeems us. And as Colossians says, God delivers us from the domain of darkness by the body and blood of Jesus Christ that we're going to partake of in a second. And he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, into a kingdom of light forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this idea of light and dark that we oftentimes just recognize as a physical reality of this world, Father, is actually a parable that you're telling us. And I want us, when we wake up in the morning, to realize that. We are headed to high noon in the presence of our King forever. Where your glory embraces us and overwhelms us every single moment and we experience the fullness of God. I want us to feel that, Lord, and I want us to reflect in this season as we enter into the Advent season, the Christmas season, and we posture our hearts around the reality of Jesus Christ, that in that manger, lying on his back, was not only a baby, was not only a small Hebrew child born to a peasant family from Nazareth, but he was the son of the living God. He was the pre-existent eternal word that upholds the universe by the word of his power.
And then he went from the highest to the lowest to come and get us. And may we regard that sacrifice, the emptying out that he did there as a treasure and a joy this season. And that in the delight that we have in all the other things that Christmas brings, we would never lose the center that Christ came in the world and he didn't need to do that, but he did it for the glory of his Father and that we would experience the joy of being in his presence forever. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.